Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. Welcome to this week's Follower Friday, episode 135 on The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. I'm Greg Frank, letting you know that in this show, it will be part two of our recap series from last month's Commodities People Conference in Houston. We'll give you three more subject matter experts today, beginning with Rohit Ogra, co-founder of Creedy Oak Clean Energy, and he'll be our first guest. But before we get to Rohit, a word from co-founder and COO of eRenewable, Ann Niemer. Ann Niemer here, COO of eRenewable. We know today whether you're a public company private equity, or privately held company, ESG and sustainability are important to your company. At eRenewable, we can help you achieve some of those goals. If you have any questions or need any assistance with regards to reaching your sustainability goals, please visit us at eRenewable.com to learn more. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Mike, thanks for having me. This is Rohit Ogra, co-founder and senior partner at Tridio Clean Energy previously co-founder and chief commercial officer at AP Solar. AP Solar was a first mover in bringing large-scale solar to load pockets, um, uh, namely the Houston load pocket in ERCOT. And uh, we've ended up doing 1.6 gigawatts AC of solar projects across four different sites. Our first project energized in March. Two of our other four projects are in construction. And the fourth one is is in late stage development going through a sale process at this time. Well, that's great. Thank you for the introduction of yourself to our listeners. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. We met at the Commodity Trading Week Conference, and you were one of the speakers for Ben and Howard at their show. I listened to your talk, and there was a couple items you kind of talked about that I hadn't heard other people say. And I wanted you to bring that topic to our listeners. That having to do with how there was merchant projects being developed in the Houston area, but after the storm, the tax equity market dried up and they pulled back on it. And now they're just starting to pick that back up again. So tell everybody what you talked about at the conference and how you're seeing that market come back around. Sure, sure. Yeah, in the aftermath of Storm Uri last year, we saw certain outcomes with projects that had a certain kind of offtake contract, which uh, put those contracts or those projects into, uh, into what I'd call technical defaults. And uh, that tax equity typically sits upstream of the project, um, is very, you know, very protected, very senior in the capital structure. Uh, but certainly uh, with the offtake or these hedges being ahead of tax equity sitting at the project level, I think caused um, some consternation and adverse outcomes that probably hadn't been contemplated previously by, by whether it's tax equity or the sponsors or, or the lenders. So we certainly saw uh, uh, most providers, in fact, all providers take a pause and look at their exposure in Texas. And specifically, we saw some of the more sophisticated tax equity providers look at, well, what caused this exposure and how can we tweak the offtake structures going forward to mitigate these adverse outcomes? Certainly, the market's moved on. We've, we've done some creative structuring with floor, floor products that don't lead to those adverse outcomes. Uh, others have as well. And so we certainly see there is more appetite now from tax equity. They have re-entered the ERCOT market. 
we're we're getting deals done as our as other developers uh, for 23, 24, and beyond placed in service projects. Well, that's good to hear. And I know uh, through this time period of the pandemic and everything else, we've had a supply chain problems getting solar panels in. And I know President Biden just gave a little two-year break on the tariffs for those solar panels. That should help in the near term. Uh, what's your feel with regards to, will that two years become three or four years? Will they extend that? Or what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the last two years, they've been some of the most challenging uh, periods for, for development of, of solar projects. And what the industry needs, what we as developers look for, what the entire uh, you know, universe of participants, whether it's the customer, financing parties, and so on, uh, transmission utilities that typically host these projects uh, or own the interconnects for these projects, I mean, we're all looking for certainty. We're all, we all need regulatory certainty. Um, this is not a two-year market. This is a 50-year, 100-year market. And so for us to take bets today uh, that allow us to deliver on time, on budget and schedule um, for our customers is of paramount importance. And um, for that, we need regulatory certainty. I certainly hope that it's not a two-year solution. It's a, it's a much longer bipartisan solution to help uh, move this clean generation agenda that, that we have forward. That's, that's our, our take. I think that's the industry's take. Well, that's great. I think you're exactly right. Uh, the speaker I have coming on after you is Mike Prokop. Good afternoon, Mike. My name is Mike Prokop. I'm Managing Director of Digital Transformation and Sustainability for the Alliance Risk Group here in Houston. Uh, Alliance has been uh, together now for about a little over 12 years, uh, since 2010. And uh, we're a a group of uh, seasoned professionals that have come together uh, in the areas of risk, cyber and infosec, definitely sustainability, which uh, I'd like to talk to you about today. So thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Mike, uh, you and I go back a long ways. We worked together over 25 years ago, and so we've known each other a long time. And uh, when we, uh, when I sat in on your session at the Commodity Trade Week conference, there was a section you talked about that I thought was very interesting because nobody else talked about what you brought up. It's about how you thought associations should be more of a driver of the direction regulation takes. And why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what you talked to the attendees at the conference about with regards to associations getting involved in regulation? Uh, no, great question, Mike, and thank you for that, because, you know, it's one of these things where I, I hate to, you know, hate to coin an old adage, but there's strength in numbers, if you will. So as individual companies, if we were to visit with the regulators and, and talk about perhaps pending reg- uh, legislation or regulation and how it will affect us, my experience has been over the years, and I can highlight a couple of examples of that, where uh, the regulators actually welcome groups of companies or individuals coming in to discuss uh, the economic impact on the industry of of certain proposed regulations, um, and perhaps even offer um, some of their own, you know, solutions themselves. Um, Many of the regulators, and, you know, Mike, you and I have dealt with CFTC and FERC, and always, always very open about uh, taking recommendations from industry and maybe how things could be done better, or, um, you know, economically uh, more, applicable to uh, the industry itself. So I'm hoping, and I, and I trust this is the way it will be with the SEC. Obviously, we worked with Gary Gensler in the past and, and a lot of his staff 
So uh, I'm hopeful this is the case again. Speaking from immediate experience right now, I have been a member, um, even as you may remember, of the Committee of Chief Risk Officers now since about 2005, 2006, originally founded in 2004. Um, just as an, a quick example, uh, back in those days, I, I came to that group when I was at Amerex with you to talk about the price reporting problems that the industry was having at that time. And we actually, the CCRO, as it's, as it's known, came together to form the safe harbor uh, statutes around price reporting because everyone was worried, oh, if I'm going to send a bad price in, I'm going to go to jail, get fines. So we actually created the safeguards. If you make a mistake, it's okay, let's correct it. And it survives today. That is where I think the strength of an association, something like the CCRO, and it could be the AGA or all, all of the other energy associations that are out there can come together to do this. And I would say that the strength of an association, too, is coming together with folks like the rating agencies, the banking groups, and, and other big concerns, the venture capital groups that are, that are involved in ESG and sustainability right now that also need to be heard. And to have them heard, not as their own silo, if you will, but together with industry, I think is extremely powerful. Well, you know, uh, the topics of ESG and sustainability... If you talk to anybody, they'll all agree it's still the wild, wild west out there because mm -hmm. there's no real direction. So right. I think you're on point because if we let the regulators on their own come up with those guidelines are, it's going to be as complicated as Dodd-Frank and everything else that they come up with that hurt our industry. Okay. Yep. So if you could take your model and actually get, put that into practice, I think you're onto something, Michael. And, and I really do think so, Mike, and a lot of what we heard at the conference, um, and even just recently, this, this uh, came up and was reiterated by another company we were speaking with, they are seeing what is coming, and trust me, it is coming, <laughs> and it, it has been a long time coming since the late 90s uh, in and around uh, ESG and sustainability and things, that this is a heavy lift. This is something that's going to be as big as many of us remember socks. And certainly Dodd-Frank, as you've mentioned, it has grand ramifications if it's not done correctly. So again, um, awareness, which you can get from a community or a, a industry association, um, and the education that you need around this. And I, I must say to also know what others in the industry are doing to manage these risks, because this, this whole movement around ESG and sustainability right now is, it always seems to, fall right at the lap of the risk officer, right? So it's, it's a new kind of risk uh, and also an old risk. We, we have reputational risk. We have operational risk. We have cyber risk because there's going to be data going back and forth, InfoSec in those areas. Digital transformation and, and how to manage that data uh, more efficiently and correctly. And this is another topic that came up at the uh, Commodity People's Conference, and that was uh, in and around integrated risk management and really how risk always seems to sit at the, the top of the pile, if you will, of these, these new endeavors and these new happenings in the industry. And then the, the functionality of that entire way to address this new risk to the company falls with them and they have to bring together all, the, all of those different areas of a company 
in order to do it effectively. It's going to be quite a lift for all of us out there. Again, what you can do with the trade associations and uh, bringing like-minded people or even those with differing opinions together and uh, do as we're doing with the ESG group that I'm now leading with the uh, CCRO is talk about benchmarks, talk about best practices. Uh, the CCRO is a nonprofit, is a, is a, a big purveyor of, of best practices. And those, those uh, white papers and things that we put out are, are public. So, um, and we do share them with the regulators and the, and the like. So we're doing the best we can with, uh, with a lot of folks in industry right now, as many, many associations are. Well, you know, uh, you and your team, you're helping form the future of ESG and sustainability over the course of the next three years. Let's hope it doesn't take five years to get where you're wanting to go with it. Right. But we need it sooner rather than later because we don't need more wild, wild west out there. That's for darn sure. Right. Yes. And yeah. And there's, you know, there's been regulation proposed. It's one of those things. Let's, you know, let's rip off the bandaid and let's, let's learn how to address it and uh, work with the regulators. Very good, Mike. Thank you so much for your time today. And we appreciate it. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Okay, thank you. Our next guest is Elizabeth Carlson, who appeared on episode 74 of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Here she is to give you a quick refresher on what she does. I'm Elizabeth Carlson, and I am the Chief Sustainability Officer at Tricon Energy, looking after our environmental, social, and governance performance. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today on The Green Insider. We were at the Commodity Trade Conference in Houston, and that's where I ran into you. And I loved the part of your talk when you looked at the audience and you asked them, where does ESG lie within your company? And as that's only one sentence, it's a really important sentence in my view. And I'd like to hear you tell the listeners why you asked that question and what are you seeing done out into the corporate world on where they are holding ESG's responsibility within the company? Yeah, I think that in today's operating environment, it's important for every company, no matter how small, how big, whether they're privately held or publicly held, to have responsibility clearly marked within the organization for their performance on sustainability or on environmental, social, and governance issues specifically, those responsibilities might be divided between a few people. They might be owned by a committee. They might be owned by an individual or a department, an executive champion, and so on. But for me, it's really important that the organization at least has a a clear point of accountability for performance on those issues. If you don't have someone responsible, someone who's you know, compensation and performance results depend on these issues, then ultimately it's, you know, it's just going to get overlooked in the day-to-day activities and, and business that the company is doing. Of course, we're seeing more regulation and more interest from stakeholders on these issues, but on its own, sustainability is important for the success of a company overall, and it should be part of their core strategy just like any other area, whether it's, you know, health and safety or HR or supply chain or um, legal or, or other types of, you know, traditional departments that we know, we really need to start bringing 
sustainability into the norm of how we conduct and manage our businesses. So for me, that's, that's why I challenge companies to think about, you know, have you designated responsibility? Have you put accountability into the structure of the organization for, the, for these issues? Um, as to where it lives specifically, I think sustainability can live anywhere, but where you put it and who you put in charge of it can certainly influence what you're able to achieve and even how you're perceived internally and externally. So we're seeing a drastic uptick in titles like mine, where you have chief sustainability officers. That field has been growing exponentially over the last decade. And, and this is often a position reporting to the CEO looking after these specific issues, mainly the environmental and social issues, as well as the governance of environmental and social um, performance. And then, you know, for some companies that may not be feasible, they may not, for whatever reason, be able to structure their organization that way. And for me, I think, you know, the alternative is having worked in pretty much every department over my career um, within sustainability. I, I think my favorite places for this to live is in operations so that it can be part of your core business or in a department like strategy where it has visibility across the company and access to the executive team. I don't recommend sticking it into a random function, but if you do, it, it needs to be understood that sustainability really is cross-functional and it's collaborative across the organization. And the reason I'm hesitant to put it in a traditional function is because then it can get a bias of, you know, if you put sustainability in legal, which I've worked under legal, it tends to become about compliance. And sustainability isn't just compliance. In fact, it's everything beyond compliance. Um, if you put it in HR, you might do a great job on the people side, but you're going to miss, you know, the environmental and the strategic aspects and the long-term value. Um, the same, you know, if you put it in risk, you can manage well your ESG risks, but you might miss that part of the long-term sustainable value creation that you want your business to have or your impact on society and environment beyond just how it hits your bottom line. Traditionally in the old days, it was in marketing at times. And I think that pushed a lot of the concerns on greenwashing. And, and so of course, if you put it in that department, that can be something that you're perceived to be. So it's really you know, about finding the balance within your organization in terms of how you can have an impact internally and how you can make sure that the accountability is really set in place and has the empowerment to act. So, you know, it needs to be at least championed at a level where there is sufficient authority or um, empowerment to carry out ESG activities. Well, that's terrific information that you just uh, told the audience and I'm sure they appreciate everything you said. The question I want to expand upon just a little bit is you referred to whether it's public or private sector. In the pu public sector, I see a bit of a larger growing demand for it than necessarily in the private because private, it's extra money, you know, so on and so forth. They're not looking for those investors. But in the public sector, I really see and feel the sustainability role expanding faster and faster. Would you not agree with that? I think it's certainly more visible 
in publicly held companies. And going back to where you put it, um, if you put sustainability or ESG in your investor relations department, <laughs> that probably tells you what your intention is with doing this, these activities. Um, so we, so we do certainly see that that push from the investor side, but I wouldn't discount private companies. I think there's a, a strong trend in private equity right now to push forward sustainability, and that's having an impact on a lot of um, companies that aren't listed, for example. And then, honestly, I've really enjoyed in my career, I've worked for a couple private companies of different sizes. And what I've seen there is, is sort of a deep commitment to people in the environment and the legacy of the company. And that's a different value driver than the stock price or investor interest, right? But it lends right. itself actually to um, ESG and sustainability principles more easily in some cases if, if the founder or the family or the CEO or whoever it may be holds those values. And that's certainly the case in our company where our CEO and founder has that vision of making a positive impact, not just financially, of course, financially, <laughs> but also on people in the environment and his grandchildren and future generations. Um, and so as you see private company executives and leaders adopting those values in their personal lives, I think you'll, you'll continue to see more and more private companies adopt sustainability principles and how they do business as well. Well, thank you so much for that information. And uh, I always look forward to hearing you speak. You gave a great talk at the last seminar or uh, conference we were at. And uh, I appreciate your time today. I know you just came off holiday. Hopefully it was, you had a good time and everybody stayed healthy. And uh, thank you for your time today on The Green Insider. Yeah, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That concludes episode 135 of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thanks a lot for listening, and please make sure to go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating because, as the saying goes, you learn something new every day, and we were responsible for today's lesson. From Mike Niemer, I'm Greg Frank. Enjoy your weekend.